Before we get into this episode, we just want to mention that one challenge we faced recording this is that news is rapidly changing. Some things we look at in here have changed since recording, and we've added updates to these before releasing this episode. These things will continue to change though, hopefully for the better, so we encourage you to look up anything we discuss that interests you to get the latest information. Hello, and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things that they do. I'm David. I'm Farley. And I'm Annie. And today, we're talking about some of the bad ways that COVID-19 and isolation have been affecting wildlife. Last week, we had the good stuff, and now it's time for the bad stuff. Yep, if you felt like our last episode was just too one-sided and too positive, then don't you worry, we've got you covered. It actually has taken us about well, several weeks now to record this because the first time we attempted it, we did such a terrible job because we were so depressed and just angry about having to do it. But hell, we took a couple weeks, we've reanalyzed and we're ready to go. Yes, after, I think it's cursed because yeah. our sequence of events has been pretty comical the last hour of trying to start this recording. The latest was that Farley's phone put him on safe driving mode and wouldn't let him do anything. So, And all three of us have had tech issues in the past hour or so. Yeah. And not only that, but the last time we tried to record this podcast, we were able to meet in person. But now because of COVID, we are now back in full isolation and once again on Zoom in separate houses. So there you go. If anything could have been, we pretty much had the worst thing happen to us as we possibly could for recording. So let's do this. Let's do it. Yeah. So in order to break down how COVID is affecting us in a negative way, and affecting wildlife in a negative way, we decided to approach this in three ways. The first is how COVID-19 is changing the attitudes towards animals. Second is some of the direct, direct impacts on wildlife that COVID is having. And finally, how changes to human behavior during this period is affecting animals. So we are not going to go so much into the exact science about how COVID-19 came to be and how it is spread from an animal to a person. Um, As we've said before, we are wildlife biologists and I'm definitely not uh, an expert in virology. So we're going to keep it fairly simple. So yeah, so what do we know? Well, we know that COVID-19 was transmitted to humans from wildlife. Um, And what animal did it come from? Well, as far as we know now, scientists have some ideas, which include that the two biggest culprits could be bats and pangolins. And why them? Well, both those animals carry diseases that are very similar to the COVID that we have. And if you have no idea what a pangolin is, then you clearly haven't listened to a few of our podcasts, because we seem to talk about pangolins a lot. Um, But pangolins are super cute animals. They are, they essentially look like anteaters with scales. They're a mammal that's native to parts of Africa and Asia and they eat ants and termites and they are very cute. (laughs) But to the other point, well, um, it's not common in America or Australia. There are places called wet markets and these are places where humans and wildlife come in extremely close contact. And these animal wet markets are like your normal farmer's markets that you go to and you get your zucchinis and your kale or whatever you want. But in these wet markets, you can also purchase fish, meat, and in some instances, you can also purchase wild animals, both live and dead. 
And those animals you can purchase include bats and penguins. So now while we are not 100% sure the virus came from one of these markets, that's where a lot of the first cases in humans came from and can be traced back to. The problem is that since people have found out that COVID-19 potentially came from these two animals, people have obviously started to feel a bit uneasy about them. And while pangolins are only found in Asia and parts of Africa, bats are found around the world and this has given them a bad name. The reputation of bats has gone down the drain and people are trying to get rid of them. In China, people are forcibly evicting bats from their homes and calling for them to be cold. In San Francisco, people are actively reaching out to experts in order to learn how to trap and kill bats in an effort to save human lives. In Australia, Wildlife Victoria has reported an increase in violence towards fruit bats, a species that literally cannot do any harm to humans. This isn't really fair on the bats and can actually cause problems for other species too. Bats are super important. They're are important pollinators. So when we think of pollinators, we often think of animals like bees and butterflies, but bats do a lot of work spreading pollen around as well. They're also really important in spreading seeds around. Cave-leaving bats produce a bunch of guano, also known as poo, which is a key source of nutrients for the entire cave food chain. Bats can be really good at eating agricultural pest insects. All in all, there's a bunch of reasons why bats are the good guys and they don't get the love they deserve, especially not at the moment. Yeah. Bats in Australia, they've had a pretty rough time recently. Um, they die of heat stress for one thing, and they've lost a lot of habitat from the recent bushfires as well. And now with the current situation, yeah, as you said, the reputation for them has really dropped quite unfairly. Yeah. Nobody likes them. It's not very nice. And killing bats or trapping them to try and move them around is actually more likely to cause spread of disease among bats and between bats and humans. The best solution is actually just to leave them alone. Normally you wouldn't come into contact with bats, would you? You'd just, you'd see them, but you don't, they don't get close to you. Yeah, exactly. Like there are some bats, some species that will live in roofs and things like that, but at least here in Australia, you're not going to, you know, poke a bat in your backyard, usually. <laughs> no, and that's always, that's the funny thing with all of this. It's the idea of once we get a fear of something, our first reaction is kill it. Even if we don't see them that often, we just want to kill them. And that doesn't stop with bats. I mean, I think it actually really started with sharks. If you think about the number of times you've heard about in history of us going on mass killing sprees of sharks because one person was attacked, yeah. even though that one person, I mean, how often do you see a shark when you go in the water? Rarely. Yet one person gets killed and it's time to kill all of them. You know, there's no science that backs that killing them actually really does anything. Yeah, that's a really good point. So we tend to think that killing a bunch of animals will mean there's less of them and we're less likely to come into contact, but that's not even necessarily true. Um, one expert here in Victoria was pointing out that yeah, if you kill a bunch of fruit bats in Melbourne, then you're just going to get other fruit bats moving in. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to even have that achieve that thing that you're trying to achieve. It's complicated. So the reaction of killing bats, it doesn't work. And what is a real reaction or what's a real solution to which we can kind of solve this is it's pretty simple. Let's stop the wildlife trade. 
with leave the wildlife where they are and with stop trying to bring them into areas close to humans and try to trade them and try to eat them and do everything with them. Instead, we'll just leave them where they are. And remember, it's not the bat's fault. And COVID-19 is now a disease that's moving between people. So we want to blame an animal. It's not the animal's fault. It's our fault for spreading it. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get COVID-19 from a bat or a pangolin right now. You're going to honestly get it from your mom and your dad <laughs> or your son <laughs> or your daughter. <laughs> Yay. Yay. A different way that animals can be affected by COVID-19 is to actually get it themselves. There's a real fear that COVID-19 could spread, particularly into animals that are more closely related to humans, like great apes, gorillas. And there have actually already been some reported cases of COVID-19 in other animals, specifically big cats, so tigers and lions. Though I think not many, is that right? Not many. Under 10, yeah. Yeah, it was mainly at one zoo, I think. The Bronx Zoo, yeah. Yeah, right. And there were two house cats that tested positive for COVID. It doesn't stop and end with humans. It also can affect other animals too. Yeah. Since we first recorded this podcast, there have been some more reports of COVID-19 causing captive animals and pets to become ill, including cats and dogs. This still seems very rare, though. In each of these cases, it also seems like the pet picked up the virus from their owner rather than the other way around. There's no evidence that people can catch COVID-19 from infected pets, though obviously more research is still needed. So now we've talked a bit about how COVID-19 is affecting people's attitudes towards some animals and also can, well, infect animals directly. So now we're going to focus a little more on how the way human behaviour at this time might be having negative impacts on animals. Now, I'm sure many of you have realised, but one industry that has really suffered right now is travel. And with travel um, not being a thing that we do now, uh, places that are based around tourism um, are really suffering, and especially ecotourism. Yeah, a lot of conservation projects actually rely almost entirely on tourism for funding. So one example of this is mountain gorillas in Uganda and other parts of Central Africa. Tourism is the main source of funding for their conservation projects, and this is because tourists will pay a lot to visit the gorillas and they will also spend money in those communities when they visit. And so without tourism as a source of income, we might be seeing, and are already seeing, some of these conservation projects just struggling to keep their operations going, not able to employ the same number of staff and leaving these gorillas without the support that they would otherwise have. I guess the idea is um, a lot of times when you have these countries or even these groups of people who are deciding to change the way in which they're approaching animals. So say you're a hunter-gatherer community or your community that's based on, you know, you kill what you can, you eat what you can. The change was that when they... When profit could be made on the animals in a different way, so say you can bring in tourists to, say, look at gorillas, all of a sudden you want to keep the gorillas alive, make sure their habitat's still there, so you can benefit off of the gorillas and make money off of it. But when you remove that tourism, it kind of reverts these groups back and say, we don't have an income now. So the only income we know we can do is potentially you know, cutting down the forest, go back to farming, or potentially killing the animals. And it's a really sad process, but that's kind of how it goes. In Costa Rica, my example was 
the idea of the government has supported bird watching. So traditionally, Costa Ricans would kill birds for food. So if you're part of a small community, you go, you shoot birds throughout the day, especially when you're a kid, you bring them back to the family, family cooks them up, you eat a bird. But then when the government started funding projects where people learned how to bird watch and lead birding groups, all of a sudden you have the same people who know where the birds are, who know how to identify the birds, know which ones taste good and which ones don't. They go out and instead they actually bring people to those birds on a daily basis. So you're just changing the way in which you approach wildlife. So instead of eating them, you're showing them to the world. So when you remove that, it I think it really challenges people. I mean, obviously we're still at the early days of COVID, but that's going to be a really big challenge. If tourism has gone for five years or two years, whatever it's going to be, people are going to struggle to find means to support their families. And so when you can't do it through tourism, you may have to revert back to a more traditional way of making money, which a lot of times is using the resource instead of trying to save the resource. So ecotourism is on the decline, not just because of these travel restrictions for us, but also because there are, like I mentioned before, some risks of transmitting COVID-19 to animals like apes, who, as our close genetic relatives, can catch some respiratory diseases from humans. So in Central Africa, these measures of having to try and protect the mountain gorillas have resulted in also even more reductions in money from tourists visiting. Yeah, tough on all sides. And also, ecotourism is not the only way in which animals are being affected. Um, zoos and sanctuaries are also feeling the effect. Um, and a number of sanctuary and rehabilitation centers throughout, for instance, Indonesia, um, have release and reintroduction programs for orangutans. But because of COVID, they are stopping these um, reintroductions and these releases. And so instead of having these sanctuaries be a nice flow of animals coming in and animals coming out, they've kind of met capacity or they're at capacity and they're no longer able to release these animals. And so they actually cannot function the way they did before. And so all of a sudden you have animals that either are being turned away or that are just stuck in captivity for much longer than they should be. I just have this image of a place just overflowing with orangutans. It's terrifying. Or it's really cute. There's just a lot of orangutans, so many orangutans. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. Not yeah. good news. Uh, are there any solutions to these? Yeah, so I guess conservation organisations are having to get a bit more creative now about how you can fund these programs without tourism. So one thing that's been floated around, I don't know if there's anything actually released yet, but I know there are things under development in terms of virtual ecotourism and video games and that kind of thing so people can virtually go and visit animals or play games that'll help you learn about stuff and yeah sorry i was gonna say there actually are a lot of parks there's a lot of um parks at least throughout africa that do um virtual um safaris so you can actually they'll the keepers are still there or it's not the keepers sorry the rangers are still there they have a gopro attached to it so you actually can go on virtual safaris online oh, and so these cool. areas that say Someone from Africa, sorry, someone from Australia may not be able to easily access the Serengeti, but you can pop online and watch a ranger do their little drive around tour of the of the uh, of the area itself. That is so cool. That's tourism in the comfort of your own home as well. You can sit on yeah. the couch with a beer and go on safari. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> and then another thing too, I mean, the most simple way in which you could support these people, uh, these conservation groups, and these different communities is just to donate and also buy things from them. So a lot of these groups 
have shifted and they actually sell things. And so if you want to go online, whether it's local products, stuff like that, there are a lot of ways to support them just through donations. Yeah, that's another industry. Well, not industry. Charities are doing it tough right now too because obviously people aren't in such a good position to support charities right now. So if you have the means, that's a really positive thing you can do. Donate to charity. Okay, now the final one, which is a little bit closer to home for me and not as important, I'm sure, to... Uh, they care about America as well, but they're not as embarrassed as I am that this person is uh, governing their country. But one thing in which a lot of people overlook during COVID is that a lot of things in politics are changing um, as far as our reaction, not only towards animals, but the environment. And back in the U.S., since COVID began, the Trump administration has been having an absolute field day with environmental policy. And these are policies that have been changed and that are going to affect wildlife for years to come. And a few of these include opening hunting season for bears in once protected areas throughout Alaska. Um, Recently, it's the expanding of offshore drilling, allowing drilling in places that were never allowed before, and also just expanding the amount of drilling we actually can do. But in something that I'm sure if you listened to our podcast before is very close to home, and that is that uh, Trump has altered the Migratory Bird Act. Now, what has happened um, with the Migratory Bird, uh, Migratory Bird Act and what he has changed is that he has removed the threat of punishment to oil and gas companies and construction companies, or really any organization, that kill birds incidentally, saying that accidental kills two birds ought to be able to operate without fear of prosecution. So in other words, if I'll put this really simple. If you decide to, say, drill in the middle of the Caribbean um, in U.S. waters, and your oil starts leaking, and that kills a ton of birds, well, you that's incidental, so it's fine. So pretty much what Trump has done is he's actually making... <laughs> Any accidents, so if you kill anything or any bird by accident, it's totally cool, as long as you didn't plan to kill them. But so like you, everything you could say is an accident, right? Like that just yeah. seems like a massive... Ugh. Oh, it's insane. It's like the idea of, it's like, unless you say like directly, hey, sorry, that oil, that oil you know, barrel is going to explode at some point and it's going to kill about 3,000 birds, then you are held liable. But if you just, <laughs> if that happens by accident, eh, you're cool. And that has changed, and this is an act that has been, this is one of the longest running, uh, I believe it's one of the longest running protections for animals in the entire world. It's been around since 1918. And he just changed it to make that now legal to accidentally kill them. So I think it's one of those things where we really have to be diligent and aware that policies are changing and these things are going on around the background. And while, yes, there are a lot of other important things happening around the world, but we cannot let these small changes happen without any kind of fight back or pushback. Two weeks later. An update. This decision by the Trump administration to change the Migratory Bird Act has now been overturned by the federal court. But as it usually goes with Trump, when he loses one thing, he attacks somewhere else. Trump and his merry band of enviro-hating nitwits are now opening up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and natural gas drilling. This area has been protected for over 60 years. Yeah, and while that focuses on America, I think it's true everywhere. It's it's very easy for things to happen right now without people noticing or even thinking about the long-term consequences because 
you know, we are understandably very focused on COVID-19 and how that's affecting our lives right now. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's even hard for me to focus on this stuff, and I miss a lot of it. And I feel as if I'm someone who's very in tune. But at the moment, I think it's extremely hard to focus on anything but being stuck in my house day after day after day after day, hearing about more deaths, more people hospitalized, more cases rising. It's very Mm. mind-consuming, all-consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so on a very somber note, we're going to end on a very somber (laughs) note here. We did say this was our bad news podcast. Well, I think maybe we should end too with summary of some of the positive things we can do, right? So we mentioned before things like, you know, don't run with a flaming torch into a bat cave trying to eradicate all the bats. That's not a positive thing to do. Leave the bats alone. Um, We can also try to support conservation groups where we can. Obviously, that will be different for different people right now, what you can do. But, you know, keep an eye out for some of those virtual options, which honestly sounds super cool. Um, While while most of us probably have never seen the illegal wildlife trade, um, I know I saw it in person when I was a kid going to reptile shows. Just be aware of it. When you see something kind of sketchy, like selling an anaconda out of a pickup truck, just say no to that. Let's not trade wildlife. And maybe the most important one is go out and vote. The November election, at least for people in the United States, is not far away. So get out there, register, and vote. We have to vote to, one, keep this monster out of office again. But also, it's really important for us for environmental reasons and to protect our wildlife and to actually put people in office that are going to do this. Yeah, it'd be nice to have some people in charge who believe in science. (laughs) I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say not even believe in it, know what it is. (laughs) Yep. Understand the scientific process. All right. I I don't think we have anything more to say. I'm impressed we finally got through this. It's It's been a tough one. But I think we thought it was important to, yeah, yeah, talk about some of these issues. Yeah, I think this is probably the least fun one we've done. I'd say probably the hardest one too, which is interesting. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's good that we did it though, because this stuff needs to be heard and people need to understand what's actually going on specifically to wildlife. And, you know, again, as much as we want to focus on ourselves, it's good to think about other things as well. Yeah. yeah. As per usual too, you can check out our social media channels. We'll post some more links to um, some of this this stuff where you can learn more I mean we've barely scratched the surface in this podcast in a lot of ways so yeah there's much more to read and learn much much more well thank you for listening and we hope you are all keeping safe and well bye Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Allsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin and all original music is by Sean Pratt.